Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that follows the money behind the beautiful and sadly missed game. I'm Kevin Day, and uh, he's leaning right towards the camera on his laptop. I've just got a really good view of the top of his head, as I said. That's the top of Kieran Maguire's head, which obviously you can't see at home unless you have very good imaginations. But uh, hello, Kieran, how are you? I'm I'm, uh, enjoying the sun, uh, coping with isolation. Very fortunate having a a dog. Uh, All all the neighbours are now coming round to the house asking if they can take the dog for a walk, because it makes them look less guilty. When they're wandering the streets. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a friend of mine carries a, a full Tesco bag at all times. <laughs> Brilliant. Which is a good trick. It's it's Monday, so it's questions day. The first question I have for you, Kieran, is it's a genuine one from a friend of mine who listens to the pod, but he doesn't want me to read his name out. But his question is, does your wife listen to this pod because he's worried that you're oversharing? Uh, no, she doesn't. She's got far more sense. Fine, Okay. So the Thailand story, in particular, it was a Thailand story that he was worried about, to be perfectly honest with you, on top of the Russia story and the Trinidad story. But as long as the Baroness doesn't listen to it, that's fine. Now, um, it's, it's a sign, Ken. I feel less like the co-host of a pod than an exam invigilator because our listeners, God bless them, have got time on their hands. So some of the questions have, have stretched a little I've bit. I saw. Yeah, amazing. Um, yes. Yes. I'm subbing. Oh, you do see the questions in the yes. That answers another question. Um <laughs> Uh, but I think I've pe- people have got more time on their hand and they've got an attention span at the moment. So I'm, I'm happy to have left some of the longer questions in. And I think you can you can sort of give slightly longer answers if you want. Some of them don't require such, but some do. And we end with a very existential question, which is a very interesting one. But first of all, uh, uh, David Mann. Now, David's an Ipswich fan. Um, uh, Ipswich, for me, one of the best away days in the country until, until and this is, I can't believe I'm even saying this out loud, they shut the Drummond Monkey and made it into a car park. The Drummond Monkey was the best away pub in the country, and they've made it into a car park. You wouldn't make the cathedral. You wouldn't if, if somebody knocked a cathedral down to make it into a car. Basically, the Drummond Monkey was a cathedral. They used to show DVDs of the away the away games. Oh wow! The away fans. You know, so you go in there as a Palace fan. It'd be red and blue. The Palace DVD. It was a fantastic pub, and they've knocked it down. David, man, you live in a town where they knocked down a. Oh, anyway, but David's question. David's had an argument with a mate. Basically, Ipswich are in League One at the moment, and David thinks that the current financial situation of Ipswich Town is perfect for a new owner with with no ambition. So basically, what he said is the current owner, Marcus Evans, uh, is looking to move the club. And Marcus has said he won't continue putting in six million pound a year of his own money, but he's reduced the wage bill by sixty percent since relegation to League One. They're still getting a good crowd. So David's argument is that this would attract a new owner that doesn't really want to invest, that could keep the club ticking over in League One, whereas his mate, his unnamed mate, which suggests to me that there's quite a few of his mates who don't agree with him, <laughs> David's unnamed mate says, why would a new owner not want to be back in the Championship with the increased TV revenue, glamour, etc.? So, 
it's it's again it's a long question, but it's is there anything in that argument that perhaps a, a club would be more attractive to somebody who wants to sort of buy and own a club but doesn't really want to spend loads of money getting it any further up the table? Um, yes, there is. There's just the the idea of owning a club because you want to be part of the community. Um, you are a local fan and you've got limited funds. In which case, provided you can persuade the, the fan base to buy into that and say that our ambition and, and Ipswich, um, Ipswich's ambition should be to get out of League One. Because if yeah, you, if you yeah, take yeah. a look at the crowds they're getting, you know it's you've got clearly Sunderland are getting the biggest, and then it's Ipswich and Portsmouth. You know they're they're the two other you know significant clubs in terms of fan bases. So you'd expect them to be towards the top of the division. Um, in respect of uh, Ipswich's finances, they they are quite unusual in the sense they spent the whole of the last decade in the Championship, mm. and they did literally lose six million pounds a year. Um, you know, and and that's that's a hell of a lot of money. But what I, I found unusual is that as I went through every single club's wage bill for every single season um, earlier this morning. So I started at about five o'clock. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I was guaranteed in my head that that sentence would end up earlier this week or earlier this month, not earlier this morning. Well, what is it? Was it that cockerel? Was it next door's cockerel? Woke ne- you up again? Next, next door's cockerel is, is a bit of a troublemaker. But I, I'd seen the questions from Guy, yeah, the they, producer. They say, that, they say that next door about you, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Ipswich's wage bill went up by ten percent over the course of the decade. Now, practically every other club's wage bill doubled. So, right. what, what appeared <laughs> to be the case was that at, at the start of yeah, about 2010, 2011, Ipswich were around about average, probably slightly above average in terms of the wage bill. And, and normally there's a link between wage bill and where you finish up in the table. And over the course of the decade, they slid down that table. So they were sort of effectively bottom six. So for the course of the past sort of three or four years, um, you know, they, they have been battling relegation. That The football, by all accounts, was pragmatic um i think that was the the, the the description you know in terms of mick mccarthy being the manager and he fell out with the fans and and then when he left they very quickly went downhill in terms of the table and were relegated what can you achieve in league one well even on uh, even if you reduce the the wage bill by 60 percent it's still going to be one of the, the the highest wage bills in that division so you'd expect ipswich to be either in a promotion place or a playoff place the problem is, is there's a huge gap between League One and the Championship, and whoever takes over then has a decision to make once they get back up. Do they want to be sort of a quasi um, yo-yo club? If you look at Rotherham and Barnsley, and perhaps to a certain extent Millwall, um, you know they have been up and down. That they're not paying the crazy wages of the Championship, um, and then hope that you might get a couple of decent loan players, a couple of decent academy players come through, and then you pitch for promotion. It's a strange. I was thinking of the comparison between Ipswich, this question basically, and when Steve Parrish and the others took over Palace in 2010 and admitted that they'd basically spent their money on buying the club. And the fans were happy with that because we had a club. But is, is it, there's a world of difference between somebody bailing a club out as they did and buying a club that's, that's doing all right but admitting that they haven't got any ambition beyond having the club. I mean, the fans, that's a difficult sell to fans, isn't it? I mean, it, it, if David's, you know, his point of view is that you know they're a perfect club for a, a you know a, a sort of starter level owner, but that is a big sell. It's a, to to actually say that to fans like yeah, I'm buying this club, but I'm not really going to put that much money in it. I'll pay the wage bill. We'll see how it goes. 
It's not going to start off on a good foot, though, is he? it? It's not. I mean, sometimes the best thing that you can do is to be not be the previous owner. If, if we take a look at uh, what's happening at Newcastle, you're going to start with a lot of goodwill. Um, it's exactly the same at Bolton, but that, that goodwill at Bolton has evaporated quite quickly. Um, and, and if results don't improve, um, then you know, the same could be true at Newcastle. Um, in terms of Ipswich, whoever takes over, you know, they, they are a championship club. Yeah, that if if, if yeah. you were to sort of to say where was your gut feeling for Ipswich, um, you know they they've got a big ground, they've got a you know a, a, a large local fan base in the sense that they are the only club in the in the local area. Um, they've been well run historically. They've got mm. you know they've got the you know, the glory years of, of the Bobby Robson years. They've got the history and the heritage. Um, so that yeah, they should be not in League One would be your gut feeling. Sometimes that history and heritage doesn't doesn't help. I mean, when they won, they won the title with Alf Ramsey back in the sixties, and when Bobby Robson came along with those great European nights. I mean, they were they were anomalies, really. I mean, a club the size of Ipswich shouldn't have been winning the things that they did for 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 two decades. So that kind of gives you an unrealistic view. It's a little bit like Forest in a way, and, and Derby as well. Clubs that have got Villa, even clubs with a really illustrious history that will. That will never come back. I think Ipswich. I think they just had the longest consecutive run in the championship. I mean, they're in the championship for about eighteen or nineteen seasons. Mm. And as a fan, you, you can, and I know this from experience as well as you do. You kind of you, the championship is fine. You'll accept you support a club of a certain size at a certain level. Once the novelty of being in League One wears off, I mean, that first season is great because you think, great, new away games. You know, we'll definitely win this. Once you once you're there for two or three seasons. It becomes difficult, and I, I, that's a lengthy preamble to a question. You said on our last pod when we were talking about Oligon Social that, that it's going to be a buyer's market for players when this is all over. I presume it's going to be the same for for clubs, is it? I mean, clubs presumably will be available at much better bargain prices than they, they would have been two months ago. Very much so. Uh, I mean, I, I can't go into details, but I've been sort of connected with one or two people interested in buying a one or two clubs. And, and the advice that I'm saying is, you know, just take that first first price and, and knock it down by two thirds, if not more. Wow, um, because really? if, if the club is losing 100 grand a week and you've got an owner who's got a business that's struggling as a result of the pandemic, and, I, and I'm not being, I'm not trying to be malevolent here, but he needs to sell. And yeah. therefore, you, know, you can end up buying buying the club for a pound, as we saw in the cases of Bolton and Berry. Uh, the, the the problem with a football club is is a yes, there is an asking price, but I think that asking price can be negotiated down. But b what's going to be the cash flow once you own it? Because if you bought Ipswich today, you've got a club which doesn't know when its next pound's going to come in through the turnstiles or the TV yeah. companies and the sponsors. Well, the sponsors are Marcus Evans a lot of the time, so yeah. you're going to lose those as well. So you'd have to say, well, how much is it going to cost me on a week-by-week basis just to run the club? OK, now there are a couple of questions coming up that are relatively short compared to other questions this week. The first one is from George Sheldon, who's a fan of the show, so much so that George very nicely starts by saying that one day we'll get a clap from a grateful nation which is a lovely sentiment, which he slightly undermines by saying the clap of a good kind, which I, I think is firmly very much got your Thailand story subconsciously in his head there, basically. But George is, a, George is an Oxford fan. Um, now, George wants to ask you about a tweet you sent, which was you basically, you, this is a quote, disappointing they have used legislation to avoid publishing more detailed profit and loss. So George, as an Oxford fan, wants to know what that legislation is. And how commonly is it used? Now we we've touched on this a couple of times, but we've never really fully un, fully explained 
why it is that clubs are legally allowed to, to, to publish curtailed accounts. Right. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not just directed at football clubs. Right. All companies in the UK, if they have two out of three of the following, if they've got, I think, turnovers less than 10.6 million, your balance sheet is less than six and a half, and you've got less than 50 employees. If you, if you tick two out of those three boxes, then you don't have to publish your profit and loss account. So therefore, the fans don't, go to, go, don't find out how much money are we making, how much are we paying out in wages, how much are we paying in interest in loans, are we paying any tax... Um, you know, what what what's the proportion of wages as a proportion of turnover? So none of that data goes out to fans. Now, my view is football clubs take advantage of specific rules. Remember, we've got the football creditors rule, yeah. which means that should a club go into administration, outstanding tra- transfer fees and outstanding player sums have to be paid first. Um, so they're quite happy to take the good things out of, out of the rules in terms of being a football club. This one, you've got to show a bit more information. You've got to be a little bit more transparent with fans. Too many clubs are taking the view, we don't want you to know. And and that really grinds my gears, not only from my point of view as an analyst, because it you know it hacks me off a bit. I've got to start sort of interpreting figures a bit with a bit of... Uh, bit of guesswork um but i think we are investors in clubs and and if, if the other is investors in clubs the bank manager gets to find out the full accounts the tax man does clearly the owners and the shareholders do well why can't we as fans it's our club we're the idiots that go from south end to macclesfield on a tuesday night get home at three o'clock in the morning and then go to work the following day and, and i think that there's too many owners whose view of fans is that they're idiots to be monetized um patronized and just there to provide a debt backdrop for the TV matches. Uh, all of which I agree with, but it, you say this is not specific football legislation. What is the the reasoning then? What, you know, when this legislation was introduced that, that companies of all sorts could hide certain figures, what's what's the benefit? Why would a company choose to, to do that? Is it, again, is it to hold... To shareholders avoid this, I don't. I don't quite understand why it's a law in the first place. To be perfectly honest, um, I think that there's. There's. Think it's four million companies in the UK. Most of them are, are one man bands, and it's simply just to reduce, yeah. you know, to give them a little bit of privacy as individuals. <laughs> Uh, so, okay. so you can see it from if, if you're if you're a, if you're a local plumber or plasterer and, and you've set up as a company because your accountant has told you to do so, um, you, know, you you have to go and pay your corporation tax. You've got to pay your VAT, do your normal stuff. Um, but a little bit of privacy does no harm. I think when it comes to a football club, which you know, and, and we are these. We are these old school romantics. Um, we think of the football club as part of the, the is an institution of the community. It belongs yep. to the people, and therefore the people are entitled to know a bit more. All right, well, there's a club. It's not that far from Oxford, is it? Northampton. My my geography of the South Midlands isn't isn't at its best, because mainly because I tend to leave places late at night after a gig. Um, but Mark, and I apologise in advance to Mark. It's C I N I, so I'm going to go for Chini. Mark Chinney's a Northampton fan. This is a very simple question, but quite plaintive. Could you explain the situation with the missing money at the Sixfield Stadium? Because Mark certainly can't. He can't understand it, and he's a Northampton fan. He's been trying to follow it. Right. I mean, we could go on for about six hours on this, but I'll give you the I'll give you the very much the cut down version. Um, I think around about 2015, 2016, Northampton Council gave a loan to Northampton Town Football Club of ten and a quarter million pounds to redevelop the stadium. Um, That money was then given to, uh, ended up in in the pockets of a company called First Land. And uh, First Land 
didn't seem to keep any records. You know, your accountant, Johnny Numbers, says, keep your receipts, keep your bills, do all of this. Well, First Land appeared to do none of that. And um, two and a half million pounds went out in loans, but we're not sure to who. Um, the, uh, the, the chairman of First Land, he took a one and a half million pound dividend. He then lent a load of money to other companies which he owned. Um, then the ownership of Northampton Town changed and it ended up in the... Uh, it was ended up being owned by a couple of guys called David Bauer and Kelvin Thomas. But it now seems to have been taken over by a company in the British Virgin Islands, which might have subsequently sold it to somebody in China. So we've got this ridiculous chain of events and transactions. Um, some money has been paid to local politicians um, to to fund their uh, campaigns in in, uh, in in the recent elections and things of this nature. I think in the 2017 elections. Um, the, the former owner, uh, David Cordoza, he's been made bankrupt, but he transferred his own properties to his wife before that happened. Um, as a case study, it's absolutely fascinating. But the council's lost £10 million to begin with. Nothing's really shifted in terms of the stadium. There's been an investigation launch, which has cost the council a further £3 million. And the police have... Uh, got four million pieces of evidence, which they've looked at in terms of their works. This story's gone under the radar, but from a local point of view, it's just a god-awful mess. I, I mean, to say it's gone under the radar is, is a complete exaggeration. I, I knew nothing about this. There's one thing in particular you said there which I found very interesting. Some of the money made its way to local politicians in the 2017. You're not talking about the money in the Virgin Islands went to Virgin Island. You're talking about... British MPs were the recipients of some... Yes, what, one of the... Well, no, no, they, they, it was somebody who wanted to be an MP. I'd, OK. And so, so therefore, it's, it's, not, it's not actually involved in anybody in, in the Houses right. of Parliament. Um, but it, all the same, it, it doesn't reflect well, um, A, on the council, because they didn't do their due diligence when they, when they lent the money in the first yeah. place. Yeah, they seem to be very, very lax... If you were lending somebody ten million quid, you want to make exactly sure, you know, that there's there's uh, you know bows and whistles and God knows what else to make sure that that money does end up here in the in the pockets of the right people. So the Northampton fans have have lost out because they've not seen the development of the ground. Uh, the council have lost out because they've lost ten million pounds. Uh, the only people that have made money out of this would appear to be. Some of the new owners, um, in, or not the new owners, some of the people that the new owners have paid, and of course our silver-tongued friends mm. in the accounting and legal profession, who who have presumably taken most of the three million pounds in investigation fees, for, you know, for doing stuff which should have been avoided in the first place if the council had done their work. Well, I think this is a story we're going to have to keep an eye on over the coming weeks and months, without a doubt. We'll add that to the list. But um, the other thing I'm slightly spooked out about is that you referred to my accountant as Johnny Numbers. He actually goes by the name of Bobby Numbers. He's, <laughs> my accountant's Twitter handle is Bobby Numbers. God bless him. He's, I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's part of a very reputable showbiz accountant uh, firm and has been for quite some time. Um, uh, he's still rused the day he took me on as a client, basically. We get on very well. He's an Arsenal fan, but <laughs> our regular meetings are... Um, Ali basically has to come to, to, to interpret. Anyway, our next question is from uh, Kevin Hope which I think in the circumstances is a great name, Kevin Hope. And also, it's a really good question because I wasn't entirely sure. I had to do a little bit of research about this to, to find out that it, it still went on. I, I'll, in fact, before I ask the question, I'm going to give you a bit of context because I was reading like in the in the 70s, a big 
big foreign clubs like Santos of Brazil would spend a lot of their year travelling around the world, playing prestige friendly. So, for example, they lost to Plymouth Argyle 3-2 in, in one particular game and then were paid by their own admission £1,500 in cash after the game and they had to pay more because Pele played and so on. They also played Fulham. And we know that in the 70s, teams like Argentina and Brazil would spend a lot of their time on tour. So this question from Kevin Hope, um, basically he's asking about the cost of staging international friendlies. Do countries like Brazil and Argentina still charge home countries a fortune to travel for lucrative friendlies? And is that payment linked to how many stars play and for how long they would play? So would Lionel Messi, for example, play for Argentina in a friendly if, if the money was right? Well, the, the short answer is yes. If, if you are uh, trying to host a, a match, if you're, if you're an individual football association and you want prestigious opponents, it could be that you're opening a new stadium, it could be for political reasons, it could be, could be that you're wanting to host the next, uh, you know, the next Comic-Con conference, the, the next, uh, uh, you're involved in UEFA competitions and so on, then you've got to pay the going rate. And there's no difference here between individual countries charging money to, uh, to play in friendly fixtures, as we see on pre-season tours. You know, Manchester United will be charging between one and a half and two million pounds a pop in all probability when they go to, yeah, they go to Africa, Australia, the USA and so on. They're not doing it for the sheer joy of it. They're not doing it because it improves the players' pre-season training. It's because there are fees involved. So it's exactly the same is true. And, and the big countries, the likes of Argentina and Brazil and England and Germany and so on, they can command decent fees. And they will be linked to the number of stars that that do play and, and certainly the fees involved there as well. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. So... I, I, do you know what? I, in my naivety, I didn't fully realise that. I always kind of assumed that money was involved, but that these, these tours were somewhere, you know, sunshiny and somewhere with good training facilities. So, so presumably a club like Man United, for example, would be working two or three seasons ahead. So would Australia and China try and outbid each other for these tours? Or Hong Kong? I mean, is, that how, is there a bidding process? Do Man United say, look, in four seasons' time, we don't know where we're going, but if, if you want to suggest somewhere, we'll go where the money is? Yeah, well, Manchester United are probably the most successful commercial club um, on the planet, and, right. and and they do have a you know a, a long planning horizon. If Manchester United come to town, everybody wants a ticket. Everybody wants to be, to sponsor the match. Everybody wants to get the perimeter advertising, and that comes at a cost. United know the value of of their badge. They know the value of their brand, um, and they price it accordingly. And you know. Manchester United can be criticised for, for some things, but as a business, they, they run on a pretty smart ship. Now, a couple of seasons ago, there was a spate of games, mainly in West London stadiums, especially around QPR and, and uh, Fulham, of Ghana and Nigeria, for example, playing uh, teams like Argentina. So what? who would have been paying for those? Because it always seems slightly strange, because it was always sold as an opportunity for Ghana and the Nigerian football fans in London, of which there are many, to see their national team. But... 
presumably somebody would have been making money out of that then. Yeah, th- there would have been a promoter. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Just, just, uh, yeah, it's the equivalent of putting on a boxing belt. Oh, okay. So what happens is the promoter goes to QPR, says... 17th of June, is that free? Um, I think I can get Ghana versus Argentina. Um, they come to an agreement. Then they negotiate with the, the two nations, the football associations of the two nations, who will then put it, you know, th- there, there will have been a some form of end-of-season tour organised for the players to which they will commit to pay zero matches, one match, two match, you know, as part of their relationship with their, their football association. And, and that's how it operates. So the, the football association will make money out of it. The club will make money out of it. And ideally, the promoter will make money out of it, provided he sells enough tickets. OK, well, now, Mark Ridley has asked the next question. And again, they're all good questions this week. It, all the questions we get from our, our listeners are good questions. We've never had to turn down a question yet for it not being a good question. Um, and, and you wouldn't know listening at home if that was true or not, but it is true. Uh, Mark Ridley, now, this is a, an interesting question because, again, this is something that's gone slightly under the radar when we're talking about TV rights because this season Sky introduced a red button feature for midweek championship games. So, Basically, you can watch them all if if you wanted to. Well, you could, unfortunately. And basically, Mark's question is, how much were clubs getting for that red button deal? And basically, was it worth it? And his other question, and and I would have asked this question out just on its own, is you've been on telly so much recently. When is your cameo appearance in The Simpsons due? Uh, Well, I'll I'll answer those in in, in the correct order. Um, (laughs) the, the, The new TV deal that the EFL have negotiated with Sky is worth £119 million. It's £595 million over over a five-year period. Um, and, and that's an increase of 35% on the previous deal. So in, in terms of the money, the clubs don't get matches for individual viewers watching them. Um, the way that the money is split between the three divisions is that 80% of the, the uh, EFL money goes automatically to the championship. In, in terms of the, the impact on the games there has been quite a bit of research down done and it does appear that the midweek games taking place in the championship you know those tuesday night specials which are great by the way you know that anybody that's ever supported a club in the championship knows what it's like both home and away but we have seen a drop off in attendances it's around about nine percent so to a certain extent you're robbing peter to pay paul in that the clubs are getting more money from the tv deal but they're getting less money in terms of punters turning up on a match day now it could be that some of those punters are season ticket holders and who have thought well it's you know it's raining outside you know the, the uh, you know one of the kids is ill I was going to go to the match but I can now watch it on the red buttons in which case there's no loss to the club I think the potential losses are in terms of match day tickets because you know if you go to Leeds away it can cost you up to 45 quid and you think that on a Tuesday night when you can actually now watch your team on the red button and get up for you know a full not have to go and rely on two hours sleep before you go into work the following morning. There's a lot of appeal for things of that nature. Now, I'm slightly confused by this. So for Leeds United, for example, 9% is a lot more than it would be for Barnsley. Yeah. So it strikes me that the bigger clubs will probably lose out here, won't they? Yeah, I think to be fair to Leeds, you know, their support is is so loyal that it, they've not really been impacted, especially right, with okay. the quality of the football that have been playing. But if it is... Yeah, no due respect. If it's Preston versus Reading, 
it's not it's yeah. not doing it for you, is it? You know, in terms of you know, yeah, yeah. Well, should, should I go out the house? Should I go and you know go all the way up the M4, the M40, the M6, the M61? Get to Preston, get home at three you know, three o'clock in the morning. If I was a Reading fan, I'd certainly think twice about that. So it, it's impacting certainly upon the number of away fans, but also those home fans who might have been wavering. You know, they, they've either got a season ticket and they decided mm. not to go, in which case you know it's cost the club. The price, yeah, they've lost money on a couple of pints and a pie potentially, or those fans who don't have a season ticket but go to four or five home games, they might now go to two or three home games as a result of these new rules. There's an awful lot of bad feeling directed towards this new deal um, because when it was negotiated by the uh, by the former chair of the EFL. Uh, Sean Harvey, um, there was a lot of pushback from Leeds, Derby, Forest, and what you would refer to as the big clubs in the championship. They felt that the rights had been sold too cheaply, mm. especially in respect of issues of this. Very impressive motorway knowledge, by the way, there, Kieran, as well. That was noted. Following on from my lack of South Midlands geography knowledge or impressive knowledge of the motorway system. Now, this next, before we, we've got. Uh, the existential question is coming up, but this is our, our penultimate question. Uh, this is a question from Austin Farris. That's a, that's a good name, isn't it? That's a strong name, Austin Farris. Um, Austin starts his question. Uh, is, Austin is a fan over there in the States, or as he puts it, over here in the States. Um, Austin, if I could give you any advice, it is, would be to ignore your president's instructions to start an armed revolt just so you can get down to shops. Um, you take, it, take, that, take that advice or leave it, Austin, as you, as you may. We try not to be political on this pod. Um, but now this is a good question, and it's about something you have mentioned in passing, Kieran. Um, Austin wants to ask about the, uh, I believe they're the reigning Slovakian champions, MSK Zelina. Um, Austin says, what, first of all, what factors contributed them to being, we think, the first club of any size to go into liquidation because of the coronavirus? And secondly, and this is a really good question, we've spoken a lot about administration recently, but Austin wants to know what, what does liquidation look like, um, which I think is a very fair question. Is it just a question of terminating contracts, shutting the gates and saying goodbye, or can you come back from this in the same state as you were before, or will it necessarily be a different MSK Zelina that, that re-emerges? Um, well, to, to go through, through the, the time history, so I took a look at this, when when the coronavirus kicked in, um, the, the owners at MSK Zelina went to the players and said, we can't afford to pay you. Will you take an 80% pay cut? And right. the players said, no, we're, we're prepared to negotiate, uh, but we're not prepared. We, we can't afford ourselves. You know, 80% when the money's not uh, big to begin course, with in, in, uh, in Slovakia. Um, so as far as the players were concerned, they were going to negotiate with the um, with the owners. The next minute, the club's put into liquidation, but it appears that 17 players effectively have had their contracts terminated, uh, and those are the 17 highest paid players, and the remaining players are effectively being kept on, on much lower right. wages. Um, whilst here in the UK, under liquidation, if the... Uh, the doors would be locked, everybody would lose their contracts and so on. I think company law in Slovakia is slightly different. And my knowledge of UK company law, as you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the same as you. I'm a pub lawyer. I'm not, yeah. when it comes to Slovakian pub lawyers, I think we're both scratching around a bit. <laughs> um, but my understanding is that uh, MSK Zelina have let their highest players go and they're going to do somewhat the equivalent of what we saw Bolton Wanderers did under administration. Effectively, they're going to try to play 
when football does resume with the glory, you know, the kids and the apprentices and the reserve mm-hmm. team to see how they get on. Because um, th- this is a case of the owners want to make sure that the club continues in existence. And as far as football success is concerned, in the short term, it's it's a non-issue for them. So just in terms of, of British company law then, because I think there are a lot of people, there will be people worrying that this could happen to, to their clubs. Can you go straight from or OK to liquidation without going through administration? So you can, the owner of a club could decide to put the club into liquidation without going through a process first. You can go straight for the nuclear option. That's right. I mean, the reason why you'd perhaps try not to do it is that if an administrator comes in, the the role of the administrator is to try to run the club. I mean, you you experienced this with Palace, and then find somebody to buy it. So that means that contracts are preserved, relationships with suppliers are preserved, and you get to keep on playing football. If you go into liquidation, that is the nuclear button. The gates are shut. Everybody's made redundant immediately. And the role of the liquidator is simply to sell the assets off one by one. OK, that's interesting. Um, this is the, the existential question. Uh, he wants us both to answer this. so I'll go first. It's, this is from Tony Hay. Um, there was a bit of preamble, which I've, I've subbed down a bit. But Tony basically says... You both seem to have an extreme dislike for the way that, his quotes, big money is eating away at football as we old-timers, again, his quotes, as we old-timers once loved it, either the 60s and the 70s. Is there a part, Tony says, that secretly hopes the wheels will come off in this crisis and that we will have to return to a less venal game? Now, if you allow me, I'll answer this first. I think when we first started doing this pod, the day we first started doing this pod, when we spoke about Berry, which had just happened, I think the answer to Tony's question probably would have been a resounding yes. Obviously, not in his. It, I would have, if you said, "Will you take a, a global pandemic in order to make football more sensible?" The answer would have been no. But I would have said yes. I think there has to be a recalculation of the way football finance is distributed. But what? I've noticed I've been research as you know, Kieran, I've been researching my own book on social history, which is which is just finished. And what I've discovered is that there's always been greed in football. The very you know, those three o'clock Saturday kickoffs that we love so much only happened because factory owners and mill owners were so furious that the government restricted them from making people work seven days a week that when they were released from factories at one o'clock on Saturday, they decided that they still had to make money from them and so got involved in making football professional. There are stories I've been researching, stories from 1877 where a a club got into trouble for not only for paying a player money, but for paying him on a a Sunday. So there's always been people trying to exploit. I'm not going to ask who you're waving to because I can see there's a window outside. There have always been people going back to the, the 1860s, 1870s who have tried to exploit Football fans, but also I found out as well that through being a, a trustee of the Palace for Life, the Palace Foundation, that football and some football clubs do use the excessive amounts of money they earn for very good purposes. There are community groups, there are individuals in communities that are being helped by the excessive fee. That's the first motorbike we've had in three weeks. That's the first time I've been able to hear bird song for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I think... So the answer is still yes. I mean, I, I still think... There has to be a complete rethink as to how money in football is is redistributed because there'll be less of it. But I think it's interesting that just by doing this pod in my own research, the answer is a less resounding yes than it would have been when we when we first started. So your answer, Kieran, please. Um, my answer is whatever business you're in, if there is money involved, there will be people that will attach themselves to that money. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and football has become rich um, and it's become rich in this country because it's been successful. Because if you, you know, whilst we've got this romantic notion of what it was like in the 70s and 80s, actually, the pitches were rolled mud. The mm. toilets, you, you, you would do, deliberately avoid going to them because yeah. they, they, were, they, they were vile. The food was disgusting. Um, there was racism. There was rampant homophobia. Um, if, if a woman went to a football match, she was looked at with suspicion. Mm. So there has been progress made. And part of the reason why that's been progress has been made is a result of the gentrification of the game as a result of the money that's come in. Um, do I like to see the nature of some of the club owners that we have in football today who view the clubs purely as trophy assets, purely as something to show off to their friends, purely as a means of flipping to make money? No, I'm totally against that. But they are not the majority. They are the ones that just tend to get the most publicity. And as you rightly said, you know, I, I, I work in Liverpool. And when I look at the, the work of Everton in the community scheme, some of the things which have been done by Liverpool, the, the way that clubs have made their facilities available to health services and so on. Yeah. Ultimately, a football club is not a living, breathing thing of its own nature. It comes down to people. And if you've got the right people at the right clubs then keep it as it is. Uh, you know, we, we, you, we've both been to the new Spurs stadium. It's fantastic. It's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, and, and I went to uh, White Hart Lane, I think the first time was about you know, 1977 for an away match when both us and Spurs were gunning for promotion mm. that season. And frankly, it was a horrible, horrible experience. Um, because I was fr- I was genuinely afraid for my life, as mm. were half the kids that were there at that time. Yeah, so there are I think the positives we've forgotten about. It, it's some of the stories of money in the game are disgusting, but as you rightly said, all these things were happening a century ago. There's been bribery in football for many many years, yeah. going back to the twenties and the thirties. Yeah, if you've watched Peaky Blinders, you've you've you know what they've inferred that. And, and, and at least the game is clean in many ways, which other sports aren't, as a result of players being sufficiently wealthy to be able to be not to be attracted to go down those particular routes. The nostalgia thing's interesting, and I will keep this short because this is meant to be our short Monday pod. Uh, for, for, the, for you and I and Tony Hay are obviously of an age. I was talking to the younger lads on the Palace podcast recently who get very nostalgic, and I said the problem is that I'm old enough to remember the things you're nostalgic about. And, and you're not, as I, I remember. For me, the, the, it was the, the toilet in the way end at Fulham before Craven Cottage was when you could still. Everyone says, "Oh, it's great in the way end at Fulham because you could see the river from the way end." You could still see it when you were having a pee in the toilet because there was no roof on it, and and it, the, the wall came up to about your chin. And it's, it's, yeah, I don't, I have no wish to go back to those days. Much as I love watching the big match revisited and hearing the voice of the Saint Brian Moore, I do have no wish to go back to these days. But I think it's interesting that. That's why I like this question so much, because I think, the day, as I say, the day before we started doing this pod together, I, I would have just said to him, yes, whatever it takes. And now I don't think that. But um, Tony, it's a good question. Um, so uh, please keep your questions coming. As you've heard, they don't have to be short and sweet. They can be they can be lengthy, especially in this day and age. I can't wait for a time when my attention span can go back to how it used to be. And I just chose the short questions. Um, but the Price of Football is a DAP tip production. And if you want to ask the questions, you can do so at questions at priceoffootball.com. I shall let you go, Kieran, because I see you're still waving at the person who's obviously very important outside. I'm guessing, I'm just off the top of my head, I would guess a woman, basically, I would say. 
or somebody bringing the dog back. I don't know from your your new lucrative enterprise of renting the dog out, which is again, I, I like the fact that you know, you're always thinking of ways to make money. That's the accountant, you know. Enterprising. Very good. All right, I'll see you on uh, when was it? Thursday. We'll see you, won't we? Cheerio, gang. Yeah. Look after Take yourselves. Care. See you, mate. Bye, bye. I'm for the